Thank you very much, Brother Richard. In Psalm 39, it says, But the salvation, I'm sorry, Psalm 37, verse 39 says, But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. He helps and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. He is our strength in the valley. Such an encouragement. I want to thank, take this time this morning and just thank everyone for all of their prayers and encouragement uh, over the last week week and a half, uh, as we have uh, grieved the loss of my father, uh, thank you for the meals, for the prayers, for the phone calls, from the cards, from the letters. I know that uh, no one knows what to say or exactly what to do, uh, but just, just your words of encouragement and your prayers have meant a lot, and so thank you very much. If you have your Bibles this morning, we ask you to open up to the book of Daniel. I apologize, we were going to start Daniel last week, uh, but uh, we didn't. So we're going to start this week. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Uh, I've preached through Daniel before, at least the first seven chapters, uh, and then I always chicken out when I get to verse 8 because that's whenever they get into prophecy and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but I'm resolved uh, this time to preach all the way through uh, the book of Daniel, even uh, the stuff that I'm uncomfortable with in chapter 8 through 12. Uh, so we're going to begin our trek through the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 this morning. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought, to them, he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the Israel, some of, some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal families of the, and of the nobles, youths in whom... There was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. 
Let's pray. Father, may you give us grace this morning as we open up your word, as we strive to, to hear what you would have to say to our hearts. Lord, may we take our presuppositions, our, our understandings, Lord, and set them aside so that we may hear from your Holy Spirit. Lord, may this morning, may you speak to us through your word. Lord, we pray that your grace would be sufficient for us this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would minister and would comfort us. Lord, but even more than that, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict of sin and bring us into a deeper understanding of obedience. Lord, that we may be used for your glory and for your kingdom. We ask all this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, as we begin to study the book of Daniel, we begin the exact same way we begin to study every other book in the Bible. And that's we must understand uh, the, the mechanism, we must understand the mechanics of how the book of Daniel is constructed. We must understand some of, the, some of the, the background of the book of Daniel. We must understand the language, the author, the audience, all of this, this hermeneutical information in order that we may accurately understand and accurately interpret the Bible because the Bible can never mean what it never meant. And so as we begin to look at the book of Daniel, there's a couple of things that I want us to draw our attention to. First of all, Daniel is one of the only books uh, in the Bible that is written in multiple languages. There are only a couple of other books in the uh, Bible that are written in multiple languages, Ezekiel being one of them, uh, Daniel being one of them, and then uh, uh, some of the, uh, the book of uh, 1 Peter and 2 Peter are written both in Greek, but are written in, in different dialects of Greek. And so Daniel is unique in that Daniel was written in two different languages. Daniel is written in both Hebrew and Aramaic. And Aramaic is, is a, a crude form or a common form of the Greek language, kind of a, a common dialect. And so you have Daniel written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. Chapter 2 through chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. For the most part, there's a couple of verses at the end of chapter 7 that... that bleed into chapter 8 that are written in Hebrew. And then you have chapter 8 through chapter 12 that are written in Hebrew. So you have, you have the, the, the mechanics of Daniel going like this. It begins in Hebrew in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2 it transitions to Aramaic, and then in chapter uh, 8, the end of chapter 7, beginning in chapter 8, it transitions back to Hebrew. And when we understand the book of Daniel, we begin to read the book of Daniel, we must read it and understand it thematically. What is Daniel saying? Now, whenever we look at any book in the Bible, we must first ask our question, what does the whole Bible say? And the whole Bible is God's story of redemption, God's story of Christ and, and how he solved the problem of sin in the person of Christ and how he has redeemed mankind and how he's given us hope that is in Christ. All of the Bible is about Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation. Every, every word, every sentence, every jot, every tittle, it is all about Jesus. That being said, Daniel has in and of itself a theme that ties into the, the whole theme of the Bible. And the theme of Daniel is, is that there is a, a dominion and there is an earthly power that is ruling and reigning over Israel that is in the process that is in the midst of exile 
And so thematically, there is, there is a, a theme that points to the continuing and dominion of earthly powers of Babylon, of Persia, over the people of Israel. But in the book of Daniel, we also see that there is a kingdom that is not of this world, that there is a kingdom that is of God, and that the kingdom of God will not be superseded by any earthly kingdom. There is a kingdom of God that will never be destroyed, and that kingdom of God is that which belongs to Christ. So you see how the theme of Daniel fits nicely into the theme of the whole Bible. Now, many of us will read the book of Daniel, especially the latter parts of the book of Daniel, and we will, we will begin to, to, to look and to, uh, we've probably heard pastor and messages uh, uh, where they have taught us and, and preached that, see, Daniel is talking about the end times. Daniel's talking about that time which is to come where, where the second coming of Christ and the rapture and the tribulation and, and, and the, the new kingdom and the new Jerusalem and, and all of this stuff. And it's very possible that some of the book of Daniel is talking about the end times. But I want us to read Daniel not simply as a book that is foretelling the future, but I want us to read the book of Daniel as an encouragement. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 7 through 13. Mark, chapter 13, verses 7 through 13. Jesus encourages his disciples and says this. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will also be famines, and these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake as a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will, be delivered to brother, brother will deliver brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all on account of my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. I want to point out verse 7. In verse 13, Jesus said, this is not the end. In verse 13, he said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. I believe as Israel was suffering under the hand of Babylon, suffering under the hand of Persia, northern kingdoms had already suffered under the hands of the Assyrians. They were in exile. Many of them very well thought this is the end. As Christ came into the scene, you had the disciples, Peter, Paul, John. The disciples were themselves being carried in front of kings, being carried in front of governors. They were being flogged. They were being put to death. And I believe that they believed that this was the end, that, that the coming of Christ was imminent. If you read the book of Paul, the, the letters of Paul, you cannot help but see the imminence with which he thought the coming of Christ was. That he believed that Jesus was coming tomorrow. 
And if you read Peter, Peter believed Jesus was coming tomorrow. Peter was suffering at the hand of Nero. Peter was, Peter was watching Christians being, being burnt alive. And yet, every one of the disciples suffered martyrdom, with the exception of John, who died of old age. And they thought, surely the coming of Christ is imminent. And then that next generation, the generation of early church fathers, men like Justin Martyr, men like Ignatius, men like Tertullian, believed that Jesus' was, that Jesus's return was imminent, that, that the end of the world was imminent, that, that it was happening in their time. They were watching churches like Smyrna and churches like Pergamum where, where, where men were, were being persecuted and where they were being killed and where they were being hung. And they were watching emperors like Diocletian and Domitian who were coming into the, the, the power and they were persecuting the church and they were, they were killing Christians in, in an exponential number. And then you had men like Augustine who believed that the coming of Christ was imminent as he watched the Roman Empire fall to the Muslims. He believed that, 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 that this was ushering in the coming of Christ. And with every generation, we believe that the return of Christ is imminent. And church, let me tell you, the return of Christ is imminent. He is coming, and we believe and we pray, and I hope that He comes today. But this is not the end. Those who persevere until the end, they will be saved. And our mindset must be that, that this is not the end. When we hear of wars and rumors of wars, this is not the end. That's what Jesus said. This is not the end, but we must persevere until the end. So as we read the book of Daniel, let us avoid the temptation to read this as a calendar and try and insert dirt, dates and, and, and events and say, see, we figured it out because the scripture tells us that no man knows the day, no man knows the hour. But let us read this as an encouragement that God is still God. Go back to the book of Daniel chapter 1. I want, you to remi I want to remind us that in whatever situation, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, that God is still God. In the book of Daniel, God is God even in Babylon. Daniel chapter 1 verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God was sovereign in delivering Judah and Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God had, not, God had not relinquished his throne. God had not relinquished his reign. God did not say, you know what? Y'all have, uh, Israel has, has transgressed my, my covenant. Israel has, has sinned. They've done evil in, in, in the sight of me. And, and you know what? I'm just going to back up and I'm just going to let Satan have his, have his way. No, God is still God in Babylon. God is God in Persia. God is God in Assyria. God is God in Rome. God is God, is, God is God in Greece. God is still God regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstance that we find ourselves in. I want us to point out three verses in chapter 1. The first verse is chapter two, uh, verse 2. It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim 
the king of Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 9. The Lord gave or the Lord granted Daniel favor and compassion. Look at verse 17. And for all of these four youths, the Lord gave them knowledge and intelligence. We see the sovereign hand of God in the midst of their circumstance, in the midst of their situation, in the midst of their hardship. Something that, that this ought to remind us, and this ought to encourage us, church, that wherever we find ourselves, whatever circumstance that we see may be unbearable, may be, may be difficult, may be that situation which brings us to our knees, that our God is still that he is immutable, he is unchanging, his character is steadfast, he is sovereign, he is in control regardless of who is in the White House, regardless of who governs the Senate, regardless of who is in control of the House, regardless of what Supreme Court justice sits on the, on the seat, that God is still God. And that he is in control, and that not a drop of rain falls to the ground, not a leaf falls off a tree without the foreordination of our God. That he is still sovereign. And as we looked at the book of Esther a, a year and a half ago, and we saw the wickedness that was in Persia, that God was still God. And here, we will see all throughout the book of Daniel, that even in the midst of the reign of, of Babylon and Persia and in these wicked kings, that God is still sovereign and he is still God. Let that be an encouragement to us. But I want to remind us that the setting and the cir circumstances that Daniel and his friends find themselves in were foretold in the scripture. And they were foretold both generically and specifically. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Leviticus, chapter 26. Leviticus, chapter 26. <clears throat> the Lord gives Israel a covenant. He says, if you obey me. I will bless you. If you disobey me, then you will experience judgment. Look at verse 33 of chapter 26 of Leviticus. You, however, talking about the nation of Israel, I will scatter among the nations. I will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Skip down to verse 39. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies. And also because of your iniquities of their forefathers that will rot away with them. The disobedience of Israel had brought about the judgment of God. But it was not simply a generic prophecy, a generic foretelling. But look at the specificity of which God foretold the fall and the, the consequences of Israel. Go to Isaiah chapter 39. Isaiah chapter 39. God speaks directly to Israel through his prophet in, in chapter 39, verses 6 and 7. And listen to what he says. It says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to where? To Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your sons whom, who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king 
of Babylon. The circumstances that Daniel, the book of Daniel finds us in was foretold by God in both generic form in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Exodus. It was foretold generically, but it was also foretold very specifically whenever God told, whenever God told Isaiah that Israel, you will be destroyed by Babylon. You will be sent into exile by Babylon. And not only will they send you into exile, but they'll take your, your youth, your teenagers, and they will, they will groom them, and they will bring them into power, and they will come into power in the, the land of Babylon, and they will, they, will be, they will be executives, if you will. Now, this may discourage us, but I want us to notice something about God's character in the midst of his judgment. Israel and Judah were suffering exile because of God's faithfulness to his word. He told Israel from the very beginning, if you obey me, blessings will follow. If you disobey me, judgment will follow. And for generation after generation after generation, Israel forsook the God that had brought them out of the land of Egypt, that had given them the land of their fathers, and they served the gods of the Canaanites, of the, of the Gibeonites, of the uh, Jebusites, of all of the ites. They served foreign gods. And generation after generation after generation, God would send prophet after prophet after prophet, warning them, turn from your idolatry, turn from your wickedness, and seek my face, and I will hear from heaven, and I will heal your land, and I will, I will bless you. But my word says, if you disobey me, judgment will follow. And we see Daniel as a demonstration that God is faithful to his word. But I want to encourage us with this, church. If God is diligently faithful with his judgments, how much more can we be assured that God is diligently faithful with his gracious promises? If God fulfilled the promise of judgment, which the scripture tells us that judgment is his strange work, that he abounds in loving kindness, and that judgment is his strange work, if, if the scripture tells us that, and God, God does not delight in judgment, but he delights in grace, and he delights in mercy, and God is faithful, painfully faithful to his judgments, how much more can we be assured that God will be diligently faithful to his gracious promises? Psalm 23, verse 6. The psalmist says, Surely, most assuredly, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the promise that we have for all of those who know Christ, that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, and we'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yeah, but what about the judgment of God? But what about the promises of His grace and His faithfulness and His compassion and His loving kindness? If God is faithful to judge Israel, and we know that he is because the scripture tells us that he is. If God is faithful to punish those who do iniquity, how much more is God faithful to bless those who are his? Those who have been adopted by his grace. Those who are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, but are adopted as sons. And lo, I will be with you, even to the end of the age.
if the judgment of God brings about discouragement, let us remember that in the midst of God's faithful judgment, we see God's faithful mercy and grace. Let's go back to the book of Daniel chapter 1. I want us to notice what takes place in Daniel chapter 1. Verse 3. Verse 2 and verse 3. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar and and to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels and the treasury of, he brought them into the vessels, into the treasury of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. So this is what takes place. Jehoiakim goes in and, I'm, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar goes in and besieges Israel and, and defeats Jehoiakim and takes for himself spoils of war. And of those spoils of war are going to be things out of the temple, holy relics, holy, holy uh, pieces of furniture, uh, uh, things that, that, that were precious and sacred to Israel. And where does he take them? He doesn't take them and he doesn't put them in his den as trophies. He doesn't put them up on the mantle. He doesn't hang them on the wall. He takes them to the temple of his God. And then he takes people, royal people from Israel, children of Israel, the, the, the next generation, and he takes them out of Israel, out of Judah, and brings them to Babylon to indoctrinate them. This was commonplace, and this was an aspect of, of bringing shame to the people of Israel, and to the God of Israel. Let me give you an illustration of this when it was reversed. Go to the book of 1 Samuel. Go to the book of 1 Samuel. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Samuel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Whenever David... I'm sorry, whenever Saul was the king of Israel, it says, verse 5, it says, Now the Philistines took the Ark of God. This is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God. The Philistines, they had, they had captured the Ark of the Covenant in a battle. In verse chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the Ark of God and they brought it into the house of Dagon. Dagon was the god of the Philistines. And they set it by Dagon. And when the scripture says they set it by Dagon, we, we, we don't really understand the, the visual image of what this means. There was an altar of Dagon, and they put the Ark of the Covenant before Dagon as if, as if, as if the god of Israel was subservient to the god of the Philistines. That the Ark of the Covenant, that the god of Israel had been defeated by the God of the Philistines. And so they, they bring the Ark of the Covenant which represented the presence of God and they set it before the altar or the, the monument of Dagon, the king of uh, the God of the Philistines. Verse 3, And when the, Ashdite, when the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on its face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, they set him in its place again, thinking, well, there must have been a storm or or uh, wind, or something that knocked this statue down. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon 
and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. And only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house dare tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The God of Israel had demonstrated himself to be more powerful, to be superior to the God of the Philistines. It brought shame to the people of Philistia. It brought shame to the Philistines whenever their God was desecrated before the God of Israel. This was this, this, this imagery and this idolatry was something that the pagan world understood. And so for Israel to be defeated by Babylon and then their sacred, their sacred things brought into the temple of Babylon and put before their gods as if they were subservient brought shame not only to Israel but brought shame to the God of Israel and then the people of Israel were brought out of their home were exiled bringing further shame to Israel and the God of Israel I want us to notice in the sovereignty of God God demonstrates humility In the capturing of the king, in the capturing of the temple, the people would bring shame to both God, to both Israel and the God of Israel. But I want us to see that in God's sovereignty, that he is willing to endure humility. He is willing to endure shame for his ultimate glory. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, verses 5 says that, 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 let us have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. In verse 6 through 8, it tells us what that mind was. It says that, that Christ thought it not, flip over there, Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> this is a demonstration of God willingly enduring shame for the cause of his glory. For Christ, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with, a thing to, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and become obedient, even to the point of death, death upon a cross. Christ humbled himself, even though he was sovereign, even though he was the God of the universe, he endured shame. He endured, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 says that, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12 says that he endured and and. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame, and that he is now set at the right hand of the Father. That Christ endured shame for the sake of the glory of the Father. God saw the shame that was coming by being placed in the temple of the Babylonian gods. And and, and all of these sacred relics and all of this this imagery that, that would take place whenever they would take these these holy, sacred relics and placed them there in the temple brought shame to Israel, brought shame to Judah, but more so brought brought shame to the God of Israel. Yet God was willing to endure that shame if it would awaken his people. If If it would awaken his people to the reality of which God despised idolatry. If it would call his people to repentance, God was willing to endure that shame. And we see this with Christ. He is willing to endure that shame, the shame of the cross, if it will bring his people 
to repentance, if it will bring them to their knees, if it will bring them to obedience. The prevalent power here is Babylon. Babylon is a world power. It is the world power. But I want us to hear verse 9. In the midst of Babylon's rule, in the midst of Babylon's power, in the midst of Babylon's supremacy, in the midst of God's silence, verse 9 tells us that God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Through much of the book of Daniel, we will see God almost complicit in the judgment of Israel. And if we're, if we're not careful, we will think that, that God no longer is sovereign. But I want us to notice that while the prevalent power is Babylon, in the midst of Babylon's power, in the midst of Persia's power, in the midst of Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty, and I use sovereignty very loosely, God is still in control. Sometimes all we can hold on to is the favor of God. Sometimes it seems that the world is falling apart around us, and all we can hold on to is the favor of God. I'm going to remind you of a couple of instances throughout Christian history where it appeared as if the enemy had won. Yet God's favor was upon his people. There was a man named Polycarp who was a disciple of John the Apostle, the beloved disciple. He was the bishop of Smyrna. He was the pastor of Smyrna. And he was arrested. And he was tried. And he was sentenced to die by burning at the stake. And as they tied him to the stake and as they lit the fire, constantly the fire was extinguished by the rain and the wind. And it would come and the fire would lap at his lower extremities and would burn him. And all the while, he sings psalms and praises to his God. At that point, Polycarp could only rest in the favor of God that was upon him. It's a man by the name of William Carey. The father of modern missions goes to India, struggles year after year after year with no converts, no baptisms, buries not one wife in the mission field but two. the end of his life, sees his life as, and his ministry and his missions as an utter failure. But the favor of God was upon William Carey. And he became the model by which we would use for all of modern missions. A man by the name of Adoniram Judson went first to India and then to Burma, struggled in ministry, struggled in the mission field, buried not one wife, but two wives, 
three children while on the mission field. All the while trusting in not the circumstances of his life, but in the sovereignty of his God and in the favor of God that was upon him. There are times in our lives whenever we find ourselves in Babylon. Whenever we find ourselves in a workplace that is hostile to Christ, we find ourselves maybe in a family that is hostile to Christ, we find ourselves in a circumstance, in a situation that is not pleasant. And we look around and, and, and we, see, we see everyone else flourishing around us and we say, well, that's not fair. Let me encourage us this morning, church, hold on to the favor of God. Because in the midst of the circumstances, in the midst of the situation, if we find ourselves obedient, the favor of God will rest upon us. It doesn't mean that we will be exempt from hardships, trials, and circumstances. Polycarp died on the stake. William Carey died in his mind a failure. Adoniram Judson, bearing two wives and three children, died experiencing unbelievable loss, pain, and hardship. Yet the favor of God rests upon them. And in that kingdom that is to come, that kingdom that supersedes every other kingdom, that kingdom of God that is greater than this world, God will bring himself glory through his obedience, through those who are obedient. This morning, may I encourage us, in the midst of the circumstances and situations that God has brought us in, May we find ourselves resting in his grace and in his mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are faithful. That you're faithful not only in your judgment, but you're faithful in your grace. That you're faithful in your, your mercy. There are those here this morning. who don't know of the grace of God that's in Christ, may I invite you to come. You say, my life is in shambles. I've been seeking my own desires and my own pleasure. And this morning, God is calling you to surrender, to come to Christ. Maybe there are those of you this morning who find yourselves in Babylon, Everything that you know has been stripped from you. Your circumstances, your situation is unbearable. Maybe you needed to be reminded this morning that there is a God in Babylon. And His mercies are new every day. Maybe you needed to be reminded that His favor rests upon you. The scripture says we've never seen, David said I've been old and I've been young and I've been old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. We've never seen God's children forsaken. Let us rest in God's promises. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to be a part of what God's doing right here at Redeemer.
This morning, may you have the freedom to be obedient. May your Holy Spirit speak to us and encourage us this morning. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.